0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad,
1: some very inappropriate jokes. And she runs a charity to
2: raise awareness. Pfft, <laughs> charities. It's all about podcasts these days.
0: The A very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, do you feel oppressed?
1: <laughs> by, often by you. I don't know if it technically counts as oppression um, because it's just annoyance.: Like I don't feel like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I feel like oppression is power plus annoyance, and uh, I, I actually honestly don't today speaking of oppression
0: we have a very special guest the philosopher manuel vargas who is a professor at the just started at the university of san diego uh, sorry university of california comma san diego (laughs) how do you say that ucsd ucsd UCSD. yeah ucsd he'll be on in the second segment we've already recorded it i thought it went pretty well it's long though, we know that, so we're <laughs> not gonna have like a totally independent first segment except to make a
1: couple of exciting announcements.: That's right. we have a, a few things let's let's we'll work our way up. One, for all our uh, patreon supporters, and we'll we'll get into that as a source of support and a thanks. Um, but for all our two dollar and above patreon supporters, I finally released um, our uh, my second volume of collected beats for those who care and thank you for caring. You've gotten a couple um, <laughs> of uh
0: already nice nice replies and
1: yeah, and I I think I said it on the post. This is it's in no way do I think that what you're getting is something worth the support. Right. <laughs> it's just, I, uh, it's just a thank you and to, uh, putting together. And I have awesome album art by my friend Nikki um, that you'll be able to download. And yeah, I, I was going to you know, say, I, put, I
0: was where'd you get that? So now I know it's from Nikki. Yeah, yeah.
1: Nikki Fortier, who's a philosophy grad student at um, Syracuse, who just does some awesome art. Um, but second thing uh, is that Tamler and I spent a, a lot of a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth to finally launch the Very Bad Wizards um, second t-shirt. T-shirt Revision B. T- t- t-shirt 2.0. yeah um,
0: In response to
1: many requests. Many requests. Um, so we will launch if you're listening to this, the Teespring campaign should launch. Just a quick reminder that I think what we do is just give 30 days um, and basically you put in your order and once it reaches a certain threshold, I think like 30 orders or something, we will put the link to the Teespring campaign on the website and in show notes. This time around, actually, we, we have in Tumblr, I don't know if I've even told you, um, there are two different designs, one for for the lighter colored t-shirts and one for the darker colored t-shirts and then we have mugs and even stickers and a bunch of other t-shirt styles so so i was in charge of initiating this
0: round of t-shirt designs and so i'm talking to dave david about this (laughs) and i said look he's like well you haven't been on that you know he's sort of giving me shit for procrastinating and i said well because this, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to put on a design. It's going to look totally fine to me. And I will give it to you. And then you will just do, you'll completely take over, completely change it. Put in all the work that you think that you're sparing yourself by having me do it right now. Sort of. So I was sort of imp- implying maybe we could just skip to that part. <laughs> no. Okay, fine. I go up. Everything happened to a T, to a T, exactly how I uh, it, predicted it would. It,
1: you know, you're, you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> and Here's the, here's the thing. This, I, I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, I have zero self-knowledge. Like, I actually thought, like, you know, I put in a lot of work last time, um, and it might be completely useless work. I, my, my friend was, com- like, laughing at me because... I had a bunch of sample designs up after Tamler had given me the initial design. The original design was suggested to us by Nelson Walcom, right? Um, yeah, Nelson Walcom,
0: who seems like he has a website of his own that you guys should check uh, out. NelsonWalcom.com. Cool. We'll put a link to that on the we'll show put notes a link for it. this.
1: Um, and uh, the, the idea was basically to embrace the one-star repugnant iTunes review. Um but just suffice it to say that at some point I obsessed over this so much that I was pointing out a variety of designs that I had on, this, on my computer screen. And my friend's like, what's the difference between these, those two? And, I, and it was literally maybe like one millimeter of distance between the <laughs> monkey and the lettering. <laughs> and I was like, I, I just think this one looks better. But I needed I whatever what however it happened and Tamler was right I admit it but uh, I think that it, it, I needed him to to do it in order for me to get motivated yeah. at all so but so but well, it was that guy just
0: made you like you know got the obligation the sort of d- yeah, exactly. duty side of you uh, <laughs> in gear so duty it was worth it for me duty um, <laughs> so anyway so it looks thank good you. it looks good you know I thought maybe. The repugnant should be on the front, but then Dave, who knew how to talk me out of it, he just said, Just show it to Jen and Eliza. And they both <laughs> yeah. independently agreed with Dave. Mm-hmm. It looks very good. And the mug looks good, sticker. I guess if you're like seven, yeah, the sticker or eight will be like an old. add-on. No,
1: no, come on, on your laptop, you have to, you know, you have to show the world that you can oh, uh, yeah. say, like, "fuck the resale value of my laptop." I'm going to put a sticker on it that I'll never be able to peel off. <laughs> and you know what I might do? I might release these as um, desktop backgrounds if anybody cares. So, since I spent so much time um, it for, for your too. computer. Yeah. Uh, so that's
0: exciting. So so get your T-shirts. If you want to get in touch with us, as many of you have, we've gotten some great feedback on our last episode on moral grandstanding. You can email us, verybadwizards at com. Tweet us at Tamler at peas at VeryBadWizards. Like us on Facebook. You can rate us on iTunes. I hear all these other podcasts say how important it is, so it must be important. Rate us on iTunes. We've been moving up in those rankings and... Uh, and that's always nice to see, and that helps other people find out about us. You can support us in more tangible ways by going to our support page. Now we have a support page there. You'll find links to our Patreon page and a link to Amazon. And If you always go there, bookmark that. And then click on that before making purchases at Amazon, and a portion of what you get will go to us. And we can use that to pay for the expenses of the show and
1: reward us a little bit for all the time and effort that that we put in. Really, the, it's the, to cover your gambling debt for when the Patriots lose. Stop. Um, in the... not, even fun- <laughs> not even funny, as it's, it, joke. It's not even funny if I finally cross into the sacred... <laughs> Some things
0: (laughs) have to be sacrosanct on this show, even on this show.
1: So on to to Manny.
0: We'll be back to talk with Manuel Vargas about... You have to pronounce it Manuel Vargas.
1: Manuel Manuel Vargas. Manuel (laughs) Vargas.
0: Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Joining us right now is Manuel Vargas, professor of philosophy, um, longtime professor of philosophy at the University of San Francisco, now moving down the five to UC San Diego.
1: Look at that insider knowledge of California.
0: Yeah. You see that like L.A. lingo, Cali lingo. He could take the one. <laughs> he could take the 105 probably down to LA but then he'll have to hop on the 5. I- yeah. I'm
2: definitely taking El Camino Real all the way down.
1: <laughs> all no, the way man. down.
0: <laughs> so so Manuel is one of well he's one of our first Latin American guests. don't <laughs> You even know where you going with that? <laughs> <laughs> Lori Santos is not Latin American. She's not.
1: What is she? <laughs> no, she's Cape Verdean. She's she's of African Portuguese descent. She's she's Santos yes. though. Uh, yeah, turns out
2: Portuguese people spell it the same way.
0: I'll have to uh, <laughs> I'll have to double check that. But all right. Anyway,
2: I'm very pleased to help integrate this podcast. We're trying <laughs>
0: to improve diversity in all Here sorts. I thought of ways. you had
2: invited
1: Manuel because he's a good philosopher. <laughs> Come no, to no, find no. out, that can't be true. <laughs> well, <laughs> um.
2: What's
0: the difference between Hispanic and Latino?
2: Oh well, yeah. yeah. So well, so, so there's actually a, a whole bunch of really complicated politics surrounding the preferences between Hispanic, uh, Latino, uh, Latinx, uh, Chicano, and so on. About you know when are these when when do these terms. Uh, apply and not apply. So, uh,
0: what's Latinx
2: X? Like extreme Latin? Yeah. So it's like the you know, it, and it's the that that's actually the the triple X is a is a genre. Um, so the so it it's the current in vogue term uh, that replaces the the Latino slash uh, Latina uh, term, mm-hmm. which was the replacement for Latino. But the, I mean, the problem is is the the um, Spanish bakes in gendered. Uh, gendered uh, right. words here so so the, the the putatively gender neutral way to refer to people of uh, of latin American descent in the united states uh, is uh, would be to use the word latino but of course that that also suggests a gendering which was part of the reason for going with a some kind of combination latino latino or or the the sometimes you 'll see the uh latino with the slash a slash or a. the sometimes the amp, the the at sign latino with the at sign which was supposed right. to be the 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 compromise mm-hmm. thing
1: And then I don't know the, but the, like hispanic is just sort of the the older term I yeah, think yeah so it, it is particularly in codes for language uh, maybe
0: Is it like? Are you not supposed to say it now? Is it like?
2: But I mean, so part of the complexity is there's also regional, east, you know, east coast versus west coast usages of these terms. But Hispanic also oftentimes is suggestive of uh, or encompassing of the Iberian Peninsula um, in a way that uh, that the variants of Latino haven't been or aren't intended to be. Right. And- of so course,
1: from Spain, you can be Hispanic by some technical sort of. You know, it's almost like how you're Arabic if you if you're North African and if you're Syrian white, right? Like you speak Arabic, so you are Arabic. Hispanic inc- would include people Spanish speakers of the Iberian Peninsula who are the European oppressors to begin with.
0: <laughs> what, what about Portugal? Where do they fit in? <laughs> they don't speak all Spanish, this- <laughs> <at all. laughs> right? I understand that. Oh, it's so like, yes. is this <laughs> no? They don't. They that's don't. like a necessary condition. Speaking Spanish.
2: Well, so this is uh, this is one of the really tricky things about the 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 usage of the terms and what they're meant to pick out. So so for people who wanted to have a distinctive term that picks out uh, people of um, uh, of broadly Latin American descent in the United States, um, but who were themselves not. Uh, foreign nationals, uh, but uh, and for whom the idea of being a colonized people was a kind of salient part of the identity, then the uh, then the idea of you know wanting to be uh, grouped in with folks from the Iberian Peninsula uh, was was part of the reason for for moving away from terms like Hispanic. But there were some versions of the usage of Hispanic that was meant to encompass encompass people from, for example, Brazil. Uh, but the, the Portuguese. Uh, the the kind of Portuguese question is always the kind of complicated, uh, you know how to fit this into the the you know the the grand narrative of self understanding of the largely Spanish speaking um, uh, the uh, Americas, um, you know south of uh, of the United States. Right. So, all right, A little so, primer.
0: Anyhow, <laughs> Manuel. All joking aside, is one of the bigwigs, one of the true celebrities of the free will and moral responsibility world he also does some latin american philosophy he's developed a well-known position on the free will debate which we may talk about called revisionism i've known manuel for a long time forever i mean most of my career anyway manuel wrote one of my tenure letters and i still got tenure so thanks for that (laughs) and thanks for joining us manuel
2: Thanks for having me here, and uh, of course, uh, shout out to my kids, all the philosophers from Bakersfield, and and the boys at the (laughs) Big organization, and um, it's great to be here. Is that
0: a big philosophical community, Bakersfield?
2: Uh, It's enormous. Actually, it's, well, so it's bizarrely surprising because a place with the kind of educational achievements in the lowest levels of any major metropolitan area in the United States has seemed to produce a huge number of philosophers, by which I mean more than one um and <laughs> so are you, are you uh, talking like about swathmore now yeah no, so let's see so uh so uh louis de out of vermont uh christian coons at bowling green um oh think, yeah like, the, we all went to high school at the same time and uh from from this little central valley town christian I, I coons was gonna take- is like
0: some sort of philosophical genius from everything i've heard i've met him but i haven't Red is
2: stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, something in the water just makes everybody in Bakersfield philosophically,
1: you know. Well, I'm from Riverside, fool. Bakersfield is NorCal for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're in North, As far as I'm concerned.
0: Today, we're going to talk about something Manuel has written about recently: um, the question of whether we can be morally culpable under conditions of oppression, but. Before we do that, Manuel is probably the best person I know to talk to about the sociology of our profession. What are some ways, Manuel, that you think that our field and the debate that we both work on, some of the biggest ways that, they've, that it's changed over the last few decades?
2: I actually think the, the field in some senses has turned into two different fields. Uh, so if you look back at the literature from, say, the 70s, for example— um, uh, people were really worried about free will and uh, tended to talk about uh, moral responsibility as uh, as something they would sort of gesture at. And then the big focus was on roughly the metaphysics of free will and sometimes uh, trying to understand the kind of structures of agency that would, would either constitute or support the having of free will. And, uh, and all the normative ethical stuff was just sort of gestured at. Uh, and apart from 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 Peter Strawson's work, the kind of moral psychology of these things was largely just in the background of these discussions, Um, and and that's really changed. I think at this point now there's a there's a kind of quasi autonomous literature entirely about moral responsibility, about uh, the moral psychology of blame, that uh, that much of which is pursued almost completely independently of concerns about the metaphysics of agency. So I think that's one way in which the, the the field has really become two different fields, or Maybe the right way to characterize it is that a, a second field grew up in uh, in the weeds of the first.
1: Was the turn toward um, sort of the the non um, metaphysical question of free will? Did it did it happen before the the big sort of um, empirical turn? Did, do you think that it gave rise? To an increase in interest in the empirical work on on agency, or was it a result of the empirical work on agency,
2: or or neither? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it, it it feels like a lot of it happened roughly simultaneously, but you can of course go back and find threads of people being centrally worried about the normative issues. Uh, before or independent of systematic worry about the empirical issues, so you go back and look at Gary Watson's work, for example, and it's clear right. Watson was worried about the normative issues. You know, kind of long before most, most of the rest of the field was sort of systematically trying to figure out what was going on with those things. Uh, so I think it's a little hard to tell, but I do think that that some of the rise of the empirical literature and its centrality um, turned a lot of uh, a lot of folks on to interests in what was going on in psychology uh, more generally, where there, in some sense, had been a much older literature worried about, about blame and responsibility. It's sort of interesting that the, the literature around uh, situationism that rose up with, with John Doris's work and Gil Harmon's work, that had a huge impact in philosophy, obviously, but it's surprising in some sense that, that the first place that that stuff really got any traction in philosophy was on the discussion of virtue as opposed to responsibility, um, yeah, I mean, because you go but back and a, look at this stuff, and and the way right, the psychologists right, right. were talking about this is it was the responsibility stuff was the the kind of uh, front and center of what a lot of them were worried about.
1: Uh, you know, it, I think that the psychologists had long ago rejected a notion of of there had been a war about whether or not stable personality characteristics exist that had that you know half of the field decided was it, it just didn't, so it wasn't even. It wasn't even most of the social psychologists you would talk to probably at the time would say, like, by virtue, you mean the the, the crazy notion that we have stable personality traits like that's there's no right. right. There's no. The, can we back up
0: for a X-G-M. second just for our listeners who don't know right. what any of these terms mean, because um, and can you give like a quick <laughs> def just a quick account of the differences between action theory, moral responsibility, literature and
2: the, the free will Literature. So those those three. So uh, so I'm going to uh, avoid answering the question directly, and then I'll uh, loop back around. So I think <laughs> uh, I think it goes something like this. There's a a whole mess of different interesting interrelated problems here, having to do with when do we blame people, what kinds of agents, what kind of creature do you need to be to be the proper target of these things, what justifies our praising and blaming of one another, um, what's going on in the head when you deliberate about what to do. And then there are different fields within philosophy or subfields within philosophy that will seem more and less important to answering different versions of those questions. Uh, and so some of those fields uh, have, have uh, portrayed themselves in, in, in distinctive kinds of ways. So, uh, so when we, people talk about philosophy of action or, or action theory, oftentimes they're talking about a field that takes as its fundamental questions, questions about the nature of what it is for something to be an agent as opposed to anything else in the world or to be a sequence of events or something like that. And so, so for, for people who are interested in philosophy of action, questions about intentional action and the nature of beliefs and desires and intentions and how those things hang together to structure what it is we do and how those things make us different than mere happenings in the universe. Um, and right important, a, importantly
1: also when you can say that the agent has acted like it, where where action here means like that that it is a, a, like not just sort of accidentally caused things to happen in the world that's right, right. So, i mean
2: sometimes the, the one way this is sometimes put in a kind of uh, nice slogany sort of way is what's the difference between a wink and a blink right.
0: what but, is uh, the difference between a wink and a blink
2: well <laughs> You won't get a good answer out of me. Is is that that's different
0: from the free will literature? How would you
2: characterize that that group of? Yeah, so I think so. so I think one of the really interesting but frustrating aspects about the the the, the philosophical reflection on free will has been that it's not clear that there's a single thing people have meant by free will. But one of the things that at least a The literature at a particular point in time tended to take as the central sort of question is whether or not uh, one could do otherwise, given the truth of determinism, or given the laws plus the past, or the different ways of formulating it. Uh, So that that was one way of understanding what the free will literature was about. Um, Other ways people sometimes thought about the free will literature was whether or not we had some kind of distinctive power or ability uh, in virtue of which it made sense to engage in moralized praise and blaming of what people were doing. Um, Other times, people thought about free will, I think, in terms of something like uh, the ability to be an ultimate source of action, and that might come apart from questions about whether or not somebody is blameworthy for what they do. It might come apart from questions about whether or not they could have done otherwise. Uh, And similarly, uh, there are kind of questions I think you might think about um, whether or not we have true beliefs about ourselves when we're deliberating. So we think, I could, uh, I'm deliberating about whether or not to do A, I'm deliberating about whether or not to do B, um, do the beliefs I have about myself and my own powers when I'm deliberating, do, are those true beliefs or do I have mistaken beliefs about, about what I can do when I, I deliberate? Um, so all, all of those things, I, I think it's an open question to what extent those kinds of questions all resolve into a single answer or resolve into a single question for that matter
0: yeah your whole paper really it wouldn't make a difference what your view about free will right. was right? right like you that, could that you could be a free will skeptic you could be a libertarian, you could be who whatever and that would that wouldn't make any difference in terms of the arguments in this paper, which we'll get to in a sec right manuel yeah
2: I think that's right uh, so the the one place i want to be a little cautious about this uh though I think the the basic line here is right is just that um that i think Uh, that sometimes, so certain kinds of folks you can imagine might be tempted by a view where they think, no, 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 look, we all have a certain kind of radical libertarian freedom. And that's why none of this uh, oppression nonsense gets any traction on explaining why people have undermined responsibility. And
1: uh, Like the Ben Carson view of the world. Like, look, man, I came from the same oppressed background as everybody else, look at me. Bootstraps.
2: Yeah, so, so I think there are, I think there really are fans of uh, a, a hardcore kind of uh, bootstrap libertarianism who think that, that it's the fact of the libertarianism which is that explains why the oppression kinds of worries don't even get off the ground in the first place. But part of what I the part of what I I, I try to motivate in the, the first part of the paper is that uh, that uh, that certainly a, at least if you bracket that view. Uh, that there are lots of reasons to worry about oppression relatively independently. But even if you did accept a version of that view, you still might think that um, that there are at least features of our ordinary ascriptions of responsibility that put pressure on the idea that, uh, that, that once somebody has even the radical libertarian free will— Uh, That there are no uh, there are no questions about about oppression or socialization that uh, mitigating uh, responsibility that 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 kind of presumption looks undermined by ordinary practices.
0: All right. So let's get to talking about the paper. I I did want to ask you one last sociology question. What would you like to see more of in philosophy right now than you're currently seeing?
2: Wow, uh, so that's a great question for which you know I I think I, I'm gonna certainly fumble it because it's the kind of thing that I um you know would want to think hard about because uh, the the number of opportunities for me to say stupid and foolish things in in, in response <laughs> to this kind of question is nobody annoying. cares
0: what anybody says on this podcast.
1: <laughs> he was gonna say like you know super hot chicks. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so you can edit that out. Yeah, I, I assure you, I wasn't gonna
2: say that. Um, <laughs> so let's see um yeah all right so here's an answer uh so uh, so what i'd like to see more of in philosophy are more lines um that that is more faculty positions like in coke philosophy. lines of coke I, or, yeah yeah well that, yeah. Yeah, so uh, i'll leave it for others to decide if that would be beneficial for the <laughs> profession or not but it seems to be so so and here's why i i say only slightly tongue-in-cheek the idea of more lines um so it seems to me that that there are a huge number of really interesting questions out there that a lot of uh, philosophy departments um, are reluctant to hire people to to think hard about those kinds of questions, even though they look straightforwardly like philosophical questions and things that ought to be getting done in philosophy departments. But the explanation t- oftentimes goes in terms of something like the following. Um, we can't afford to give up any lines in these areas of, of philosophy that we already find super important to hire somebody to think more carefully about, say, for example, um, philosophical issues in in race or gender or philosophical issues in, uh, in literature. Uh, so I think there's lots of really rich and interesting things that have been done and are getting done in, uh, in lots of these other areas that look to me like straightforwardly, look, if they're not getting done in a philosophy department... Uh, in the uh, uh, In the Anglophone world, then there is a kind of big loss of a, a chunk of information that ought to be studied by and part of what 's in university curriculums and uh, and part of what's available to, to people in philosophy departments to be thinking about. So, uh, so that's the sense in which I think more lines would allow departments to, at least in principle, say, you know what, um, we don't have to give up our philosopher of mind to hire the Chinese philosophy, uh, the, the expert in Chinese philosophy.
0: The biggest problem with it is it's like a kind of built-in entrenchment of the status quo of what's interesting. If you can't hire people in these other areas, then they, they don't even get a chance to become a more standard part of philosophy departments and philosophy departments departments will sometimes hire people to teach something they don't even necessarily think is all that valuable just because you're doing a disservice to the students if you don't have a philosopher like that and they want to go on to to grad studies or to so it makes it very difficult for the field to shift perspectives in any significant way.
2: That's right, but I also think it's important to keep track of something like the following thought that um, that the field oftentimes changes even if the centers of prestige, and you know, the high-status PhD-producing departments themselves are slower to change. Oftentimes, the change is coming from the outside or from the periphery. And, and when the stuff happens out at the periphery or in these other departments, I think it's important to think that those are parts of the field too, right? They're not the high-status parts of the field, but they really are parts of the field that are changing what students are getting exposed to and what their expectations are about what the field looks like. And it's absolutely true that, that elite departments... Wield a kind of power over the canon and over what it is that people think is the field and 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 what is uh, has to be taught, but it's not it's not absolute power and uh, and there are lots of ways right. to slowly change sure. these things.
0: And that's what I tell my department is: we could become the place to go to study the philosophy of Boston sports if we just hire in the direction that. You know, I'm I'm urging them to. And um, and Lord knows
2: the very nature of fandom of Boston sports does require a great deal of study and explanation because uh, it's hard to understand otherwise.
0: uh, Does this happen in psychology where, like, is that why you guys – have sort of stopped studying anything besides trolley problems?
1: It shows how much you know about psychology. Barely <laughs> barely any of us study trolley. Um, it's all the Stroop effect still, right? It's all... It's the only reliable effect we can replicate.
2: <laughs>
1: it's all going to be just like the it's department the <laughs> of Stroop studies. Like, it, it's true that philosophy, you have just like thousands of years of traditional sub-disciplines in philosophy. Um, it seems like it's a greater risk because of um the the canon is set in stone where with a science i think it's easier to convince people that the next great thing is whatever you know trolley variations on the trolley problem um where you could people weren't doing this five years ago but now this is really exciting i i I feel like you guys have a a a tougher time convincing people hey there's this new area of philosophy that's super exciting because people will just be like but what are you saying? Like, you know, we can't teach virtue ethics? I wish it was possible to, like, hire someone in virtue ethics. <laughs> yeah. That's a
2: fringe field. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's okay. We're making jokes about Stroop effects. So, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> yes. so, um, but I think the shape uh, the shape looks a little different uh, in philosophy. I think that's right. But, but there's also a different element, too, which is that uh, there are no labs tied, typically, to what philosophers right. are doing. So the investment is the investment of a... A, a single poorly paid philosopher as opposed to uh, a lab and uh, and everything that follows with it
1: right the nice thing is though that we say a social psychology lab um the contrast effect works in our favor because they compare us to the costs of like a wet lab in bio and they're like what he just needs one hundred fifty thousand dollars in startups that's awesome I'll what's like, a wet like, lab is that like a wet and wild it's lab? yeah it's like uh it's a porn site um, yeah. n- no,
2: <laughs> what lab were you actually lab. using? <laughs> looking at you know those white lab yeah. coats, they have a different significance. There,
1: <laughs> that's right. Bunsen burners and and graduated cylinders and little chunks oh, of man. cellular material. Uh, <laughs> this could be the
0: the like, like the second show in three that we've had to take a break to jerk off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I usually just plow through it. Boy, I- I'm beginning I'm to feel so... really
2: uncomfortable here.
1: <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm oppressed. I'm, I, I'm feeling I'm oppressed. Could... We have to
0: get that in for the for the people, Manuel. I apologize.
2: <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> if we, if we get... You've got to you've got to keep the fans coming back. That's oh, right. fair enough. Fair enough. I, I want to keep the show going. Let's uh,
0: let's take a break, and then we'll come back and talk about um, an even lighter and more comic subject: <laughs> responsibility and culpability under oppression. <laughs>
2: Wait, so you guys really actually, you guys actually take breaks?
1: I make the beats
2: live. Yeah, okay. well, this is what I was wondering.
1: I mean...
0: All right, let's move on to... a. Let's talk so, about Tamler's
2: oppression. Let's talk, about, let's the talk about the
0: ways in which I am oppressed and white males in general are oppressed <laughs> yeah. in this country and in academia. Uh, what are the questions that you're addressing in this paper exactly? So what, how would you, what are you trying to accomplish?
2: The main question I want to pretend to be answering is, uh, is the question about whether or not... The f- whether or not being oppressed uh, makes a difference for whether or not somebody is culpable for the things they do that are at least partly a product of or a function of the, the fact of their oppression, and the answer I give ends up being a, a version of well, it's complicated, or uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Um, and I think the 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 what I take to be the main contribution of the paper, such as it is is uh, to try to spell out why the answer is complicated. What, what is it about, uh, you know, what is it that makes it the case that somebody is sometimes more and less responsible under conditions of oppression? And the, and the, sh- the short version of that answer is, well, oppression in various ways will make it uh, more and less salient what the kind of uh, morally suitable alternatives for action are, and uh, they make it easier and harder for people to recognize and suitably respond to moral considerations. And uh, and and the the typical case in which uh, the way oppression does that is by uh, removing from the table uh, certain kinds of uh, morally suitable possibilities.
1: There's such a, a critical um, intuition that it, uh, people don't talk about enough that you spell out. On the face of it, it seems as if You couldn't have a good answer because um, on the one hand, it seems like a really nice thing to say people who are oppressed aren't responsible, but at the same time, it um, can be disrespectfully undermining uh, to their true agency. And I think that people who are oppressed are sensitive to that.
2: Yeah, I think I think so. I think that's one of the really interesting things of, about oppression is that we are really kind of pulled in these two different directions. On the one hand, it just seems callous to think that uh, growing up in shitty circumstances has no implications whatsoever for the kind of culpability of the kinds of, uh, of choices that people make. Uh, on the other hand, it, it, uh, as you just said, it, it also seems. Uh, incredibly disrespectful to just conclude that people uh, are never culpable for what they do, that they're not really agents or that they're only defective agents under conditions of oppression. Uh, it seems to me that if you think there's anything at all valuable or important about uh, people being responsible or holding people responsible or responsibility practices and how they, they uh, build out our, uh, the kinds of creatures we are, uh, then it begins to look like a cost to be, be uh, prepared to give that stuff up too quickly.
0: So what do you mean by your claim that our agency is socially constituted?
2: So uh, uh, I mean at least two different things by that. So one thing I have in mind is just the thought that uh, the kinds of values and decisions and dispositions we have is heavily dependent on, uh, on social feedback, so we get, uh, we get reactions, we internalize norms, these things come from without, uh, and we rely on other people to do a lot of our, our moral attuning uh, to, to help us or- orient our attention and our concerns. The, the second sense in which I think of our, our agency as being socially constituted is uh, that um, I think that the right way to think about the nature of the capacities that matter for responsibility which are not going to be the same capacities that might matter, for or the same way of thinking about capacities that would matter in other kinds of contexts, but the kinds of capacities that specifically matter for, for things like culpability, blame, uh, responsibility more generally, uh, those things get their, uh, get their nature from, from broadly social and normative features about, about people living in groups. And so I think both of those things I- I interact. That is, the kinds of creatures we are is social creatures, and we rely on, uh, on social feedback or social scaffolding uh, in order to, to navigate our way through the world. But it also turns out that the, the kinds of, as it were, metaphysical cutoffs for whether we have capacities or not, or whether or not we have the capacities in a diminished way and so on, that stuff is partly settled by facts outside the head. They're settled by broadly social normative facts.
1: The sense that I got when I was reading this was, um, and maybe this is too simple, but I think that at least for people who don't think about this stuff for a living, any social structure influence or pressure is often just taken to be something that is acting in a limiting way. That is, it is removing from my agency. There is some sort of noumenal self that is ideally sort of, I can choose outside of society. But I, I think this is just a, a, maybe a particularly Western view of the individual as as being the true individual um, removed from all contexts. Like when, when regular white people say that they're going to go to India to find themselves or whatever, I'm like, no, man, you've been here the whole time. You, like, you and your agency are very much a result of your social interactions, your social upbringing, the the nest of relationships and the, the abilities that have been unlocked by your interactions with other people and with society at large. That is what gives you the freedom and to explore your own agency. Yeah,
2: good. That's right. I mean, I think this is one of the senses in which at least part of the free will responsibility literature has gotten bound up in what I sometimes think of as an atomistic or individualistic conception of agency, where the thought is that it's somehow helpful or useful or accurate to talk about agents abstracted away from social context, social inputs, uh, social feedback. And, uh, and, and I think that's just a deeply mistaken view, but it's a very powerful view that uh, for a lot of people. And I think Uh, At least here in the West, at least in the United States, uh, it's a fairly widespread view. This atomistic view is a fairly widespread view. And I think it does a a whole lot of work polluting philosophical thinking about these issues.
1: Right. And I think it pollutes it pollutes the sense of what oppression does, because I think that if you have this individualistic sort of atomistic sense of what responsibility is, then it's clear to to adhere to this view that dude doesn't matter if you're raised in a, like an impoverished environment just do it you are your like you are an agent do it whereas if you view agency as something that's like unlocked by all of the sort of the the social interactions and the social structures that you have available to you if if that is what causes you in some important way to be an agent then it's easy to see how a paucity of of you know possible social interactions and weak social structures might make you less of an agent can I,
0: I want to play devil's advocate here and it is devil's advocate because I mostly agree with you guys but I was just working on this part of my book where I'm talking about this idea of how society can restrict how we define ourselves as as people and so I, I was talking to this prison group so in this in this program that I sometimes work with the they um, they go into prisons and help them get jobs when they get out of prison, and they begin the program with this process that they call degangsterization. Um, <laughs> Why
2: are you bringing that up in this context? This Where are you like from? So, um, <laughs> so I
0: ask them about this process. So one of the things they do is they 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 take on like silly names, like feminine names, like not tough names. Um, but then – so I asked them, what is this process of degangsterization? Can you describe it a little bit? And they said, well, look, in the neighborhoods that we grew up um, and then in prison, you are forced to adopt this identity just to survive. Like that you have – you are essentially coerced by those circumstances into presenting yourself in a certain way. The prisoner told me, I see de-gangsterization as the process of finding out who we really are, right? That's not in some ways like the person who goes to India to find themselves, but that, that means something. You know, like we have to have some way of making sense of that.
1: I have to admit I don't think that it's a real thing. I mean I think that everything that you said up, up until the claim that it's going to help him find out who he really is is meaningful – the who you really are doesn't, to me, make much sense independent of the context. I, I, I think the this, this story is, is very consistent with Man- Manuel's paper about um, mm-hmm. the forces that constrain—you know, very constrained set of social circumstances make you identify as, as a gangster, especially when you go to prison. And now they are opening up a new—like, here's option three that's not crip or Blood— but but it is a, a weird, and here is you're you're making a weird Kantian turn to to sort of the the true self that was lurking underneath the whole time, which I, I think is a, a weird and and very Western, I think, concept. But I think
0: that is a meaningful claim to him. It's not one that is bound up in some sort of incoherent.
1: No, but he might be. I, I mean, think. he could be wrong. I I don't doubt that it's meaningful, right? But.
2: Anyway, Manuel. <laughs> uh, I think I am going to try to to split the difference here. I mean, I think I am certainly very sympathetic to Dave's skepticism about real selves, but I think, Tamler, you are right that we need a story anyway about what's going yeah. on when people talk this way. I, I mean, but I think there there are a couple of different stories that are compatible with that. So one one story that's compatible with that is the is the kind of broadly deflationary story where, where we say, look, uh, what the language of the, I'm finding out who I really am, is doing is it's providing a, uh, oh, a safe way of conceptualizing a different identity that is not bound up with the gangster identity. And so it's not that the language of a, a real self is accurately reporting what a real self is, because if you didn't think there is such right. a thing, then then right. that's not what's at stake. But it's, it's providing them with the, the kind of psychological and social resources required in order to to construct a different identity for themselves and that that seems smoothly explicable within the kind of framework that we 're kicking around here look social conditions can in various ways uh, get in the way of uh, you know your true rational uh, fully self reflective self and that that certain kinds of corrosive social conditions, whether it 's you know poverty or patriarchy or what have you will can do uh, can can obscure those things, and so part of what uh, part of what degangsterization on this picture would involve is something like stripping away the uh, the, the the corrosive overlay, the, the the contaminating overlay, and 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 one way of doing that is by by forcing the very non gangstery, non strong names as a way, as a way of you know getting rid of the. Of of what's involved in those identities, uh, and, and and sometimes it's a matter of also just drawing it into relief so that people can see, oh, that was actually just part of the fabric of the the script or the narrative about that kind of identity. And
1: by the way, a yeah. l- little chance to grandstand: Why do they have to be feminine names? Why can't they be names like Tamler?
0: I, I feel like Tamler. is going to edit out feminine, but now I guess I'll have to. <laughs> I'll have to. <laughs> keep it in there. I feel like Tamler would be a perfectly good
2: uh, you know, alternative yeah. de name. <laughs> yes.
0: Your brand of political correctness hasn't entered the prison system quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going. Let's get into some of the details of how agents who suffer from oppression can still be culpable in spite of the fact that their agency has been um, constructed in part by this oppression. And maybe we should start out just by defining what oppression is on your account.
2: Uh, well, then I have to look it up because it's not a, <laughs> you know, something that just rolls off the well. tongue. Uh, so think of oppression as the property of unjust or immoral treatment, social relations, or distributions of opportunities when it is produced by immoral or unjust social and political arrangements. In other words, so, shitty circumstances that ought not be perpetuated.
1: Right. And for our purposes, we could pick a paradigmatic example or at least a central example of oppression that, that isn't, you know, I mean, we could just say like like slavery in the United States circa you know, the 1700s or something like that where we could say, okay, under those conditions where everybody widely agrees that this is an instance of oppression, um, what does your view have to say about the freedom uh, yeah.
2: Good. So, so the the um, the the answer again, it, it's a little complicated. But the the short version is, uh, it depends on whether or not, for the given considered for the action that we're trying to decide whether or not it's culpable, uh, what the what the alternatives look like, what the kind of deliberatively relevant alternatives look like. So, if a person had uh, morally suitable uh, uh, deliberately relevant alternatives available to him or her then uh, the the more and better those alternatives are then the more it straightforward the culpability begins to look but if it's a case where there are not uh, there, there are not kind of good morally suitable alternatives available to him or her uh, then uh, then this begins to undercut the culpability so uh, so, for example, two different yeah. cases of, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of reporting your, uh, your colleague to the, uh, to the secret police. One case in which you're I have that your... shit
1: on speed dial. See, yeah. See. Well, I mean, so this is all
2: getting recorded, right? So I take it that, that, that a case in, in which the, the, the secret police come to you and say, uh, you know, we demand that you, you condemn one of your colleagues for uh, un-American activities. Um, and, uh, and the alternative is, uh, you know, the, the, they're going to sit there and just say, you're stuck in this this cell with me for two hours until you, you, you give me a name and you're, you tell me you're willing to testify. Uh, the, uh, the moral cost, the moral alternative there, that is the give them the name or sit in the cell for two hours uh, that looks like a very different kind of case than a case under which they say, well, look, if you don't give me the name of a colleague, I'll incarcerate you and your family. We're just going to disappear you. And that seems to me a case under which the the sorts of deliberately relevant alternatives to the, to the person whose culpability we're assessing, that is the person who, let's suppose, gives up the name of the colleague, um, it, it looks to me very different in those cases for the reason that the uh, the alternatives that, that they're facing have a very different kind of character to them. In the case where uh, of the the alternative to not giving up the name is, I just sit in the cell and and, and I'm and, you know uh the, the sit there for two hours and they finally decide ah oh, we can't get anything out of you.
1: That- <laughs> they gave me like generic Coke. I had to give you up, Hamler. Like I was like two hours with like you know Diet Right. <laughs> that's a
0: that's a good clear case. I wonder how you – like what would be an example of existing oppression undermining culpability since we're not quite there yet where a secret police is asking us to report our
2: colleagues? So let me lead by saying that that it's very difficult to pick contemporary cases that I think uh, are going to be non-controversial. Right. So let's take take a controversial case, though,
1: then. Can I can I can I just start with what one of the things where people I think on the left versus on the right are actually pulled in very different ways that might be controversial? But but I think we could analyze it this way. Um, Young kid from the projects, super impoverished upbringing, you know, let's just say African-American New York City projects, uh, poor, has. I think everybody would agree fewer options than um, the equivalent rich kid uh, across town wants the nice jeans, tired of wearing hand-me-downs with holes in them, and so turns to selling drugs in order to, um, in order to meet a goal. There's a case where I it's almost like a necker cube for me where I could say like there's nothing about this kid's mental capacities and his knowledge of right and wrong. let's just say rather he just the only way that he could get the goals that he has, which are reasonable goals for any young child to have um he had one option which was to to deliver drugs um, so those cases I think were I'm tempted to say the there is clear oppression. I I want to say that he is less culpable for doing that than the same kid across town, but but I am worried about saying that. And, and, and Manuel, how would your account
0: ad- analyze a case like that?
2: Uh, just so I'm clear on the details, uh, uh, Dave, can you say a little bit about why you're worried about the uh, the answer that you're tempted to give?
1: Because there was the option to uh, to not commit a crime in much the same way that the majority of people under those conditions are not committing crimes and they're just forsaking their goals. I don't know. I'm genuinely confused about what to say in these cases where there seems to me I want to say two things. One, this guy, if we're if we're just narrowing it down to, you know, some sort of here's a set of choices that you have. Um, uh, Well off kid had 14 uh, available choices. Uh, Poor kid had two and he could have chosen the one and not the other. But the other kid had 14, and how how am I not going to admit that that makes his life a lot easier?
2: Okay, so good, so and and here we're assuming that uh, that the uh, the selling of drugs is is morally culpable. Uh,
1: Let's assume yeah. that, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean so so uh, I guess I, so so here's the the sort of the sorts of questions that the kind of theory I'm uh, offering. Is supposed to get us to be thinking a little bit about so yeah. so do the uh, d- do the number of options available matter well i 'm inclined to think uh, there's a way in which the uh, the presence of morally significant alternatives matters i mean i don 't know how many you need in order for it to be the case and how motivationally available they need to be. These are kind right. of th- these are in many ways I think some of the hard parts of, of the case, but um following. So here's what the 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 what I think the account delivers in as much as, you know, a philosophical account's got the machinery to deal with real world cases, which I'm always skeptical that we can get it down, worked out well enough to deal with the real world. But
0: well, I mean, what's the point of doing this if it can't ultimately apply to the real world?
2: Oh, but I'm uh, God, I hope this isn't the ultimate point. Uh, I mean that I, I mean <laughs> in, in the following sense, like it it would be sad if this is the ultimate development of the the approach. Um, i think of this as a this is the you know the
0: starting place. yeah
2: this is the throat clearing bit of a of a <laughs> of an enterprise that hopefully will you know thank you for inviting me that's i have a right. lot to say so i think the thought is so here's at least as a first blush how i think the theory is going to tell us to think about these kinds of cases is so we should clearly think that um the uh the that in We'll take the take the Jean Valjean case because that's the easier one in some sense, Um, and we'll start there. the the In cases where there uh, there really is no uh, adequate viable alternative to feeding the family, either because just you know there are no jobs there, there is no X, Y, and Z, right? Then it just seems to me that uh, it's the uh, it's very hard to see how there's culpable behavior there. Um, right. Unless you all, thought, all,
1: although importantly, there is agentic behavior. I mean, I think that the—that's
2: the, right. So, so I think the right way to think about this is you have a responsible agent who's not doing something particularly blameworthy, right. um, and maybe there is some residue of blameworthiness in the sense of you're willfully breaking the law, and, and as much as you're under some kind of duty or obligation to not break the law, then there's going to be a kind of residue of uh, of wrongfulness in that. Um, right. But in terms of the wh- whether or not there are kind of deliberately significant, morally adequate alternatives available to him, I, I mean, it seems like the way we built the case is the answer is no. Right. Uh, so, so there I'm inclined to think responsible agent uh, but not culpable. Um, and, and that's the right the, – I think the, the way to think but about I mean, that that's, kind of case.
0: That's great. But that's like anybody – everyone will agree. The, the, the issue is when it gets a little more complicated.
1: When he uh, could have applied for that really shitty minimum wage job. Right. That's right. Where it wasn't completely unavailable. Like there, you know, um, it's just and So maybe we can get here to the fact that perhaps his his uh, desires are right. His set of motivations and desires and the salience of of the job option just isn't there for him in the way that it might be for somebody else. Yeah, good.
2: So so these are the hard cases. um, So I think we're all on the same page. These are the hard cases. And I don't want to pretend like the theory delivers a clear answer about how to think about this particular kind of case. But here are some of the resources, I think, are that, that are the kinds of ways of thinking about the case that, that the theory is supposed to make more salient. So among the kinds of things we're supposed to be thinking about this sort of case are things like, well, okay, so so there's an option there that's an in-principle option. He could have taken the, the the shitty minimum wage job. Now think about the social context of taking the, the shitty minimum wage job. Uh, you know, Is this a kind of thing that is... Uh, you know, what's involved in taking it? Does it involve taking a two and a half hour bus ride across town? Uh, Does it involve, uh, uh, you know, getting a certain kind of stigma attached that wouldn't otherwise be there? Uh, You know, is he in an environment where everybody else in his building is going to uh, mock and regularly humiliate him for for hopping on the bus for two and a half hours to go out to this job that's going to pay him even less than everybody else in the building is making while dealing or you know being a courier or whatever, right, so I, I think these are the kinds of questions that begin to to make uh, give us some of the tools and, and you can imagine different cases right so there might be a case under which it turns out, look th- this is a community in which you 've got a mixed set of options, a mixed set of stigmas, a mixed set of uh, 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 of uh, of forms of life that are readily available that people are seeing around them, uh and in that case, it looks to me like culpability begins to go up. But in cases where y- you think the burdens involved begin to ramp up, the stigma involved begins to ramp up then uh Then it seems to me the culpability begins to diminish
0: so let me ask you this: is this a factor in deciding whether to hold the person culpable? the sort of the benefits the value of holding people responsible and for holding oneself responsible like what if it were true that the kinds of people who take responsibility for crimes like that tend to turn their uh lives around and live more flourishing lives than the people who are willing to have that behavior exonerated for reasons of oppression or their background. Does that matter?
2: Yeah, so, so it does matter, but that's not the point at which it matters. Um, so here's, so this is a great question. So, so here's how I tend to think about the kind of uh, the the structure of moral responsibility. So I tend to think of, of responsibility a, a bit on the kind of analogy of a system of foul calls. Right? So the idea is that... Um, you know for most sports it's going to be the case that you're going to have a system of foul calls in place for for uh, for basically two straightforward and interconnected reasons one is you want to preserve the the safety of the players certain things have to be out of bounds in the game because otherwise the players get hurt and and but you also don't want the 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 system of foul calls to be so burdensome that it disrupts the flow of the game and the ability of, of spectators to enjoy it and so on so you've got these two competing pressures on it um now uh, uh, those, those facts, which are in some sense facts external to the practice, help settle certain kinds of rules internal to the practice. Uh, and, uh, but the question about whether or not something counts as a foul isn't settled by whether in that particular instance... Uh, you are uh, maximizing the entertainment value to the fans or are maximizing the safety of the players. It's settled by appeal to whatever those rules are that happen to be in place at the time. Um, and so I, I tend to think uh, when we get to the blame and moral responsibility, I tend to think of the, the, as it were, the normative structure or the justification for having practices of praising and blaming is uh, is tied into the way in which having these practices builds out our sensitivity to uh, moral considerations. It builds out our ability to recognize and respond to them. So in that sense, I think the kind of question you're asking, uh, it's a a super important kind of question. That is, so to to put it way too loosely, but maybe informatively, uh, is that uh, there's a question about how much of a culture of responsibility and of holding right. people to account, in fact, moves people along to, in, the, in the business of recognizing and responding to moral considerations. And there's going right. to be a bit of circumstance-specific uh, nature to that question. Uh, so there might be contexts in which a strong emphasis on culpability is going to be counterproductive to the, to, to the aspirations of a system that's concerned with cultivating agency in this way. So um, so I think that the so this is the sense in which I think the question you're asking is is exactly the right question to ask at the level of the what are the 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 norms of blameworthiness that in general apply to us. And, and there's a partly empirical answer. I mean, it's a partly empirical question. Right. So
0: it wouldn't depend on whether this person taking responsibility is going to help him. What would matter is at a higher level in general, for, in circumstances like this, is it helpful for people to take responsibility and to develop this culture of responsibility to achieve the goal of getting people to be more sensitive to moral considerations?
2: That's consideration? right. And, and notice that the, the, the answers to these questions might split in an interesting way. There might be cases under which it makes really good sense for people to take responsibility relatively uh, easily, but where it is not helpful for us to be blaming and, you know, less plausibly, it might go the other way, too, right? I mean, you, you, so at least it's a conceptual possibility that you could have cases under which you really don't want people taking responsibility, but you really do want people uh, being prepared to blame one another, uh, because maybe something about the internalization of those norms is, is a really great thing for getting people to be sensitive to moral considerations, but then they beat themselves up too much, um, if they, you know, if, if they right. really get into business, when we had fire around, we had
1: this discussion about how, you know, if you, if, if I unwittingly spilled coffee on somebody, um, I, I would apologize profusely, and um, the person who got the coffee spilled on them uh, would would be like, dude, dude, it's okay. I know it was an accident, right? Like, I'm, you know, I might be annoyed and I might have like whatever, but. Uh, But it seems appropriate for me to take responsibility for my accidental action because it reflects that I have some understanding. Whereas the the person who has the coffee spilled on them might just be like, I believe you. I believe you. It's okay, It's okay." And and that's that's an an interesting flip in in the way in which the social psychologists often talk about the the actor wanting to excuse themselves. No, it was total accident versus, you know...
2: um, good so i think these cases are super interesting and in part because they they point to something about how important it is for us to be perceived by other people as competent at navigating Moral, interpersonal, right. social demands. And, right, and I like that. big Be- part of the, y- the stakes.
1: Yeah, because that lets you continue to play the game that unlocks so many more other opportunities. Right? That's right. If you also, um, there's a, an example that I'm trying to find that I really, I think, captures this well when you're talking about um, what we do for children. We, we kind of know when we're, when we're rearing our children that there are times in which they are not yet at the point where we can hold them fully morally accountable because there are a number of constraints, you know, both in terms of their capacity to think rationally and, and their ability to know the things that they ought and ought not, not do. But we nonetheless hold them culpable. So you say crossing the threshold of ability is in part what makes someone properly responsible as opposed to it being merely useful to blame that person. With children, we often, we oftentimes engage in ersatz moral blame as a tool for moral education. Feigning blame can be an important part of teaching children about what is blameworthy, and it is one of the ways we nurture and develop the capacities required for genuine blameworthiness. It is one of the ways in which we help people become genuinely blameworthy. However, non-pedagogical, full-throated moral blame, <laughs> of the sort that tracks genuine culpability— is distinguished from moral education in part by the blamer correctly believing the blames to be an agent of the right sort. Um, and I love that idea of, of just sort of fronting as if the kid is an agent until the kid becomes an agent.
2: Yeah. I got to confess my entire theory is just really, a, it's a response to child rearing. Well, You um, got three I, kids, man. How many yeah. of
1: them are criminals? That's,
2: uh, well, so be. far, none that I know of but in this day and age, who really knows? <laughs>
0: I I thought it was interesting, you alluded to this earlier, that you think in kind of on the flip side of oppression undermining moral culpability, um, oppression can sometimes reinforce moral
1: culpability. This is Tamler looking to justify his treatment of us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, can you give an example of of, of how you might be more culpable because you're— in a condition of
2: oppression well so yeah so um so start with the idea that 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 one background uh, presumption on culpability is something like you have to kind of recognize the wrongfulness of it i mean bracketing negligence right. cases and so on but but that you've got to recognize the wrongfulness of the of the act and, and you might think that that one of the things that can happen under conditions of oppression is that you um the, the injustice of a certain sort beca- can become particularly visible. So, right. uh, you know, so if you suffer from, uh, from, you know, gender-based depression or racial-based depression, it might be easier for you to recognize and see when there are these instances of these things. And then as a consequence of that, it just, you know, again, other things equal, it's going to be the case that now you're sensitive to and alive to a range of moral considerations that you weren't previously, and now you can be culpable for failing to act on those and now it's even
0: worse if you engage in that kind of behavior. That's right. Then like your 75-year-old uncle.
2: Yeah, good. So, and I, and I do think, I mean, this is one of the interesting kinds of, you know, that everybody has a racist uncle, and one of the differences about the kind of, I think, the, the sort of folk conception of the, the diminished culpability of the racist uncle is partly grounded in the thought that, well, the racist uncle grew up in circumstances under which it was going to be harder to be non-racist and in which it was going to be easier, maybe even depending on where he or she lived, almost socially compulsory to be racist. Um, that, you know, the, the rest of us for better or for worse, don't have that, uh, you know, don't have the luxury of being raised in the same kind of, uh, structurally, ideologically, and systematically racist community. and so
1: We're oppressed by social
2: justice warriors. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, good. So, I mean, I do think something like this seems to be what's going on in cases of, you know, the sort of accusation of somebody being a race traitor. And uh, now, I mean, there are uses of, of the the accusation that somebody is a race traitor that uh, don't have the structure at all. But I take it that that if you're a member of an oppressed group and you are facilitating or collaborating with the oppressor, it gains some of its, you know, you gain the initial appearance anyway of increased culpability for for just this reason about the thought that you should be particularly aware and sensitive to the injustice of the oppression. I mean, I think what obviously also makes these cases uh, super interesting and super complicated is just uh, uh, whether or not... um, you know, whether or not there was a, a morally adequate alternative available to some of these folks. And I take it that's part of our conflicting right. our conflicting intuitions about these cases and about part of the kind of really um, difficult and, and kind of morally grotesque nature of the real world versions of these cases.
1: what well, Malcolm X sort of famously divided up the, the, the house slave and the field slave, um, where to him the betrayal of the house slave was clear, but... Perhaps what he didn't talk about was if it meant food and shelter for you and your loved ones, um, uh, then, like, why not take that into account? Right? Like the the um, his his claim was that the safety of you your your physical safety and you know being well fed and warm and dry and perhaps even having family members be taken care of better was not worth the the moral betrayal to all of the house slaves. But any individual under those circumstances might think think otherwise so that's why the the accusation of being a race trader under those circumstances is one that I, I think can't be made lightly
2: yeah it's a, it's a very you know these are very difficult cases you know so uh, so I think this is one of the, the the good things about seeing that that culpability is a function of kind of socially scaffolded agency and a question about what are the kind of morally Adequate alternatives that are available to you helps kind of at least cast the structure of the the tension uh, in a little better light than than maybe absent some kind of story about these things otherwise would give us.
1: Right. You also make the claim that oppressors um, they can just avoid uh, the the <laughs> the pain of knowing too much about the oppression. Because this all of a sudden introduces culpability. There's a there's a willful ignorance, or maybe not so willful. Don't ignorance. watch
0: those factory farm videos. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm not, I, you know. And I think that is part of the psychology. You don't want to feel guilt as guilty and feel yourself as culpable.
2: And I mean, and you can see why, right? It, it, so it's it's certainly from a moral standpoint, it is better to be negligent than to mm-hmm. be willfully right. uh, wrong and. So strategic negligence is going to be uh, better than uh, than learning too much from the standpoint of, uh, of you know, managing your own culpability. And it has the added benefit of uh, of giving you a certain plausible deniability uh, about, uh, you know,
1: I, I like the thought, Manuel, of, of you just sort of seeing a, a horrible video of how animals are treated and, and, and just saying like, I, I can't betray my race and not eat, like, cow brains and cow tongue, you know? Like, what <laughs> kind of a Mexican would I be? <laughs> this would be. You're asking me to give up a very important aspect of my cultural
2: identity. But it turns out that Mexican food is very adaptable for vegetarians. It is. It's one yeah. of the
1: best. Oh, man. It is one of the a best of fucking bean burritos. Oh, so yummy. Except for they put lard in everything, as, as I was told. <laughs> That's
2: not true. <laughs> um yeah you know, it depends on how you do your beans i mean
0: man well, on behalf of very bad wizards, I apologize for uh david's stereotyping of there's a lot of stereotyping. Yeah, they
2: like, about to say it's not a stereotype if it's true, right? It's this not is, a yeah. stereotype. they put
1: lard and everything. <laughs> um, uh, so here's like one one question that I wanted to to ask. It it would be a a very simplified view of society, and and most certainly wrong to say that you are either the oppressor or the oppressed. Um, I think that nowadays, given the information that we have about. Um, about the state of the world and everybody in it, and our and the power that we have to affect change in the world, we are most certainly an oppressor of some sort, um, even if not actively. And some of us may be oppressed, and some and others not. But I wonder to what extent um, being oppressed, say, um, as a uh, As a racial minority growing up in a fairly racist state, um, if that would lead you to be more or less aware of the, uh, the oppression that you might indirectly be causing others...
2: This seems to be an empirical question that I would ask it is my colleagues at uh, you know, at the psychology departments of fancy <laughs> Ivy League universities to answer for me.
0: It, it is an empirical they can question. They figure out how to answer it with trolley problems. There, well, no, they, they could just pee the hell out of it until they've got a good
2: answer. Right,
0: Stroop test it.
1: Which answer do you want? <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but there is a, a non-empirical version of the question, which is um, suppose that it does um, raise awareness of how oppression works – does that increase your responsibility to speak out for others who are in the same? Cause sh- certainly you now have a cognitive toolkit that allows you to see oppression in the world. Right.
2: I- yeah. Good. Um, so, uh, so, so here's the part of the question. I think that there, there there's a relatively um, uh, there, there's a kind of a relatively straightforward things to say. So, so one is you might think, look, um, you see a certain kind of oppression, it doesn't follow that you're going to recognize other sorts of oppression running around. Right. Um, and, and whether or not you understand the general structural or material or ideological features of your own particular form of oppression, um, and whether or not then once you see that, you pick out the structures in other places, that I think it's a kind of open question, right? So some people might have a really good as it were, oppression detector, right? They can recognize right. when versions of the kind of oppression they're familiar <laughs> Tamler, with. Oppressed yeah. are. Tabler needs yeah. his
1: uh, firmware updated on his oppression detector.
2: Yeah. So, <laughs> so the. Uh, it's working fine. There is no oppression. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, so, you know, there's a kind of interesting question. My, my bet is that you're going to get both, right? So, some people who, are, um, who really understand the kind of general structure of oppression. And then can at least in principle pick out generalized versions of it, and you might have other people for whom they're just not you know they they get it and they see it you know, um, they, they they get that it's oppression when they see it, and they're pretty reliable about picking that out but but asked to articulate what the general features are that they, they they can't do it, and they can't make that transfer over into other domains of oppression that's my guess um, but whether or not knowing that stuff so you know for you know so one way to put it is um, if you're a moral psychologist. Um, subject to oppression, uh, one way, shape or form what 's your responsibility to stand up and do something about it or fight it or speak out on behalf of? Um, because of course, these sorts of questions i 'm sure don't uh, don't uh, aren 't live personal questions for any of the people in this podcast. Um, there I, I think it's very uh, it's it's very tricky to know what to say uh, and here's why I, I struggle with what the the right answer is to say in general about this but the, the sense in which I worry about that, that there's not a good general answer here is just that um, that uh, on the one hand it does seem like well look you know it's the it's the spider-man principle with great power comes great responsibility, right? right. You, you, uh, if you see these things, you're in a position of, of social authority, um, you can speak about and to and on behalf of, there, there is a, you know, then one is, one is thus called. Um, on the other hand, I also think, uh, you know, I, I want to be respectful of the thought that uh, while it's true that greater awareness of these things can ratchet up culpability for failures to act and so on, there are lots of different forms of life out there and lots of different kinds of costs to people uh, choosing that kind of life that impose burdens on them and their loved ones. And I don't know that it's reasonable to ask everybody to be prepared to pay those costs and and what those costs are can vary dramatically right depending on social station and where you are and what kinds of uh, possibilities are available to you
0: well i think it's clear that the only reason i'm not in a top 20 lighter department is because (laughs) i've spent so much time speaking out against (laughs) oppression
1: so (laughs) these are the stories we tell ourselves i very much (laughs) appreciate the uh the spider-man reference and um, that's one even I got. <laughs> it, that's right, because there was a Spider-Man musical. That's right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a big hit.
0: <laughs> so, thank you for joining us, Manuel. This was really fun, and we uh, definitely have you back if you're will- if you're willing to
2: to
1: come back. Yeah, thanks, Manuel.
2: Thanks. This was great. I- I'm looking forward to those royalty checks.
0: man they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have pay no attention to that man anybody can have a brain you're a very bad man i'm a very good man just a very bad wizard